Let us pray for a receptive heart and mind to receive God's holy word. Holy Spirit, you know us by name and call us into Christ's kingdom. Let his words and teaching change our lives that we may better honor and glorify his holy name. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. Hear now the Gospel of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right with the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is the gospel. We're going to look at a passage uh, in Deuteronomy, again in the case law, in the Mosaic legislation that was given to ancient Israel to guide uh, the church, the people of God, Israel, in its, uh, uh, for, for a great many centuries. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 to 18. If you want to follow along as I read it, uh, this is the word of our God. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor... Do not go into his house to get what he's offering as a pledge. Stay outside. Let the man to whom you're making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, do not go to sleep with his pledge in your possession. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you and will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he's a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you, and you'll be guilty, he said. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. What we see 
in this passage is something that we see throughout the law of Moses, and we see it throughout the Hebrew scriptures in the prophetic call of justice. Justice for the poor, justice for the vulnerable. Three questions this morning. What is biblical justice? Why is it so difficult to live it out? And then how, finally, is it possible? Justice, what is it? It's described in a lot of different ways here. A lot of examples. It involves respecting the personal boundaries of people who owe you something. That first verse, not going into their home to take what they, they've pledged as collateral, but let them bring it out. Don't, just because they owe you something, you have no right to walk onto their property, to disrespect them, to go into their home and violate their personal space. Justice involved treating poor people more favorably than you treat middle class people. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 13. If, if a middle class person might give you a cloak as collateral on a loan, clothes were often the most expensive thing a family would own. But when you were poor, you typically only had one set of clothes. And so if the only collateral they could give you for a loan is their cloak, if they're middle class, you can hold on to that cloak. But if they're poor, that is a special class. You are required by the law of God in the Old Testament to actually return it by the end of the night so that they could still have it when they needed it, even though in the daytime you might hold on to it. It's, it's uh, you know, there are other things here about the way you do business. Your business practices not adversely affecting the poor, the weak, the marginalized. Justice means paying a poor person promptly in verse 14 for their work and not delaying because they need it. Justice means applying the same protection to the migrant worker in verses 14 and 15 as you apply to your actual uh, native-born Israelite. Justice means no collective punishment in verse 16. You can't hold a family member accountable for something that another family member did. Justice means giving protection to migrants in verse 17, and to orphans, people without dads, uh, uh, to widows, people without a husband. The Hebrew scriptures are filled with these kinds of examples. Injustice, by contrast, involves personal acts of injustice as well as structural injustice and the way the, the system is set up so as to take advantage of the poor or, or be leaned against those with fewer resources, and it's how the Bible can describe the absence of justice. But the big picture, what is justice? Two words are used in this passage to describe justice. They're two words that are repeated throughout the Hebrew scriptures, uh, something like 40 times together even. The words in Hebrew in verse 17 is mishpat, and in verse 13, tzadikah. Mishpat is translated justice. Tzadikah in verse 13 is, is, is translated as righteous. There's a parallelism here. These two words are almost synonymous, but they have a slightly different angle. So we're going to talk about that. Justice mishpat is used in isolation over 200 times in the Hebrew scriptures. In the courts, mishpat, or justice, meant treating everybody based on the merits of their case without allowing any partiality or discrimination based on race or economic standing or social status, but it's more than that. Mishpat is, it, it means giving all people their rights. Uh, you know, sometimes we talk about how the Bible talks less about rights than it does about responsibilities. And there's, there's more than a grain of truth in that, but the Bible also talks about rights, human rights. Proverbs 31, defend the rights of the poor and the needy, a charge given to all of us. This is why in the Bible there are these protected classes of people who get extra legal protections and an extra legal leg up because of their limitations, specifically widows, orphans, 
immigrants, and the poor. That's the four groups classified and discussed just in this passage. Uh, you see these protected classes discussed elsewhere. Zechariah 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. These were people groups who had no social power. These are marginalized people. These are the kids on the playground that are most likely to get beaten up and picked on. And so the teacher's job is to look out for them, especially to make sure that they're treated fairly and equally just like everyone else. It's God's call to justice. The mishpat is a call to side with those who lack social power, to apply pressure to even out the scales that otherwise tend to get tipped against them on account of money or status. Think of homeless people, undocumented migrants, people who lack fluency in our context in the English language. Think of the unborn. Think of foster children. Think of those with mental illnesses, those with developmental disabilities, racial or sexual or ethnic minorities, those who have been enslaved. There is modern slavery. Think of the elderly and the sick and the weak. Think of those who have been trafficked, people who are easily ignored, people who are taken advantage of, people who are overlooked. These are the people you and I might view as problem people. When I was growing up in suburban D.C., I remember we were in a, a, it was a heavily military and government area between Fort Belvoir and Quantico Marine Base. And, uh, and there were sort of two kinds of people. There were well-off people, and then there were not really well-off people. And I remember... In, in my home, we kind of looked on the poorest people on the block as, as a problem that we wish would just go away because they didn't have the resources to, to take care of their house properly. They didn't have the resources to landscape their yard. They didn't have the resources to, to, to make sure their lawn is always perfectly groomed and has grass everywhere. I mean, it looked kind of like some of, well, some of our grass. Uh, and, and there are people you just wish they'd go away. You wanted them to move. They were a liability. You didn't want to invite them into your home. You didn't want to develop friendships with them. You just wanted them to go away. That's how we view the weak. That's how we view the marginalized. That's how we view the poor. Or do we view them rather as worthy of extra love and concern and affection and friendship, people to be honored for their own sake, not someone to get rid of? Quote, I found from a, a woman in Moldova talking about her experience of poverty. She said, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. And notice the difference between how middle-class North American people talk about poverty versus a poor person in Eastern Europe. As North Americans, we tend to emphasize the lack of material things like food, money, clean water, medicine, housing. But, but poor people actually, they do talk about the material things, but, but typically they focus on their own sense of shame. They focus on their feeling of inferiority. They talk about their powerlessness that they feel every day of their lives, the humiliation that burdens them in every social interaction, the fear that they live in constantly, the, the, the crushing sense of hopelessness, the social isolation, and the sense that they have no voice and they are invisible. 
poor people don't just need handouts of money and material goods, though there's a place for that. They need relationships that ennoble their lives with dignity and trust. Christians will walk beside them in true friendship, respect, and honor as equals, not as, not as the strong and the weak, not as the one who has it and the one who doesn't, not as the hero and, and the helpless, but as brother and sisters. You know, remember the canonical context here. This is not God's word to the world. This is God's word to his church. This is not God's instruction to Babylon on how to make Babylon more just. This is God speaking to his church, saying, Church, you are my family. These are your brothers within this household, within this family, within Israel, within the people of God. There shouldn't be widows and orphans and aliens and strangers who are overlooked, who are pushed to the margins. I call you as my people to look around you. Who's not fitting in? Who's sitting alone? Who's not getting talked to? And pull them into the heart and center of community because it's a vision for the church actually show the world how it's done. It doesn't mean that we can then therefore be unjust towards those outside the church. That's not, that would be a horrible misuse of the text. But it's God saying, you have a special obligation here as my Israel, as my bride, as my family, as my people who represent me and who are creating within this family of God a foretaste of what is coming in the coming age. Think of Galatians 6. As we have opportunity, Paul writes, let us do good to everyone, but especially the family of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, those parts of the body, that's the church, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, pulling them into the middle and giving them the best seats. He has shown you, O man, Micah says, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. That's because the Lord is a God of mishpat, a God of justice. Psalm 146, he says, the Lord executes justice, mishpat, for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God defends the cause, the mishpat, the justice of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. You know that's who your God is. It's how he wants to be known. Tim Keller says it this way. He says it's striking to see how often God is introduced as a defender of vulnerable groups. Don't miss the significance of this. He writes, when people ask me, how do you want to be introduced? I usually propose, they say, this is Tim Keller, minister at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Of course, I'm many other things, but that's the main thing I spend my time doing in public life. Realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, Psalm 68. He is one of, this is one of the main things he does in this world. He identifies with the powerless and he takes up their cause. God has the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak. He identifies you who are weak, you who are marginalized. The wrong, the poor is the wrong and very, very personal. It's Psalm 109. For the Lord stands at the right hand of the poor person 
to save him from those who would judge his soul. Psalm 69, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Psalm 140, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Got a picture of, of Vinod Ramachandra here. You get that. Uh, uh, Vinod Ramachandra is a Sri Lankan theologian. And he says it this way. He says, among Israel's neighbors, as indeed in the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through, through the power of certain males, certain men. The priests, the kings, the warriors embodied divine power. Opposition to the priests, the kings, and the warriors was tantamount to rebellion against the gods. But here, in Israel's vision, it is the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Keller says, from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all other religions as a God who is on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. Thank you. There are two words to describe the justice of God here. One is the word mishpat, and the other word that is used, translated as righteous, is sadikah. Sadikah is a biblical concept of right relations. It's of being of doing right by someone. It's in the context of community. There's, there's no righteousness outside of relationship in the Bible, no abstraction of righteousness. It's always a question of how you treat people, and if you treat them with righteousness, they will not need justice because they will not be disadvantaged. And these two concepts of justice and righteousness, mishpat and sadiqah, they're joined nearly 40 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is one of those 40 times. And N.T. Wright, New Testament uh, scholar, argues, biblical scholar, argues that when these two are joined, when both appear in the same passage, they best translate using the term social justice, so that you have Psalm 33, verse 5, the Lord loves social justice, that is, he loves justice and righteousness in society, in the way we relate, in the way we do community. And so the call of God through his law, through Deuteronomy, is a call to this kind of justice to seek the welfare of the weakest and the most vulnerable. This is exactly what Jesus taught. Um, you know, uh, uh, in the ancient world, when, when you threw a party, when you did a dinner or a lunch, it was a social networking event in which you, it was all part of a larger classical patronage system, and you would throw a party, and it would be a big thing. You'd have vats of wine, dancing girls, you know, all sorts of musicians, and it would be a great, amazing, fantastic thing. And the people that you would invite to your dinner or your luncheon or your party would be the people who will be able to open doors for you, people who will be able to help your business, people who you're repaying because they've been good to you, and you're going to... And, 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 and you do it because when you invited, when you were invited into that kind of gift, you then had a responsibility to reciprocate. And so it was always a way to further your own agenda, advance your own career, advance your own community standing. And yet Jesus in Luke 14 says to the believers that when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, invite the people that will not advance your agenda. 
invite the people whose agenda you can advance. Invite the people that you can open doors for to actually help them. It's not about giving a hand out. It's about giving a hand up as a lifestyle. So what is justice? Justice is living a lifestyle that is intentionally and proactively advantaging the marginalized, pulling them into the heart of Christian community as God's people and doing right by them. That's justice. So why is justice difficult? Justice is difficult because it's costly. God understands that he is calling the people of Israel, he is calling his church to a radical life of self-sacrifice. I remember one woman in this church uh, years ago, she had actually, uh, it was uh, Jessalyn Frank, and I remember her talking about how um, things that she thought as a young person were really foolish and naive and shallow. She gained they, they, they she gained a much deeper appreciation for. She was raised in First Bible Presbyterian Church of St. Louis, which was a church split in the 1930s off of this church. Um, and, and Francis Schaefer was the pastor. She called him Pastor Fran. Uh, she grew up with Francis Schaefer as a pastor, if you can imagine that, here in St. Louis. Etzel and Union, just north of the Central West End. And uh, she remembers growing up, one of the things that would be said by Schaefer and others, adults, that they were taught is that the secret to the Christian life is joy, J-O-Y. Anybody heard this before? J-O-Y, the secret is Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And when Jessalyn was the, the cool, hip, young adult, you know, jumping on planes to France in her, you know, go-go boots and, you know, miniskirt, she thought it was the most shallow, foolish thing in the world. But I remember her saying that as she began to suffer, as she began to go through the challenges in a marriage, and the challenge of being a parent, as she started seeing parents getting ill, as she started seeing hardship and difficulty, as she started to feel the weight of sorrow in this life, she discovered something, and it took years for it to really dawn on her, but she really realized that, that the real secret to joy in the Christian life is having Jesus be that pearl of great price, that treasure that you're going to sell everything you have in order to buy the field and dig up the treasure, something so precious, something so central, by putting him first and treasuring him most and then putting others second, uh, self-sacrificially putting to death your own self-interest for the sake of others, and putting yourself last, she said that she found that the secret took her 50 years to get there to the Christian life is J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, yourself last say, Greg, you don't understand. I have kids to take care of. I need to focus on them. And you do. But in your focus, what are you actually teaching your children? What are you actually making them disciples of? If you put all your focus on your kids, on giving them, making sure they don't miss out on any experience, signing them up for every program, putting everything about them first in your family, then understand if you treat them like they are the center of the universe and like everything revolves around them. They are taking notes, you are discipling them, and they are learning to become self-centered, self-absorbed people who are going to be narcissistic, miserable in their narcissism because they will have learned from you that everything revolves around them. But if you treat them in, in such a way that, that your lifestyle as a family is advantaging the marginalized, that your lifestyle is about helping your children see that it's not all about them. It's about God and it's about the weak and the poor and the marginalized, the unborn, the lonely. You know, people who the world doesn't care for, but God cares for and we as his people care for. If you teach 
teach them that, that's what they will learn. And they will gain a confidence and a moral strength and know who God is and rush to the defense of the defenseless. But yes, it is costly to pour yourself out for the oppressed. It is costly. And also, it, it's difficult to live this kind of life because we tend to assume it's not my responsibility. Uh, that's what we talked about last week when we talked about biblical solidarity as opposed to American individualism. American individualism, when you're talking about that famous violinist who plugs himself into you, says, hey, I never chose to enter into an agreement, a compact, a contract, whatever, in which I took responsibility for this other person. Therefore, they're not my job. And yet the Bible says from the very beginning, when Cain kills Abel, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And we are all responsible for the famous violinist. We are all responsible for the poor, for the weak, for the needy. And collectively, as the family of God, have to prioritize make, taking care of the poor and the weak and the lonely within the house of God and then looking beyond to see what other help we can do. Uh, to pour yourself out. Uh, the Bible never calls this kind of ministry charity because charity assumes that this is something optional. The Bible calls this justice because it is an obligation. You have an obligation to poor people that you never agreed to take an obligation, uh, to take upon yourself that obligation. You were born with that obligation. And if you're a Christian, you were born again with that obligation to actually help those who are needy. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you are doing for me. You hear that connection. He is the God of the poor. And Jesus says, when you see the poor, you see me. When you see somebody who's lonely, you're looking at me. When you see somebody who is sick and infirm and can't get out of bed because they're that ill, you're, you're looking at me. When you see somebody who's homeless and on heroin and at the corner asking for cash, and you know it's probably going to go a bad way, but you can stay even there. You're looking at me. Whatever you did, you did for me. When you look at the poor, you're looking at God's face. This isn't meant to romanticize the poverty of the poor or to, 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 to treat poverty as if it's uh, something other than painful and humiliating, uh, nor is this meant to overlook the reality that people who are needy can be just as manip manipulative and deceptive and deceitful as the rest of us. Uh, but Jesus nevertheless identifies his face with the face of the poor and the marginalized. And so that whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for him. So complete is his identification with the migrant, with the single mother, with the kid who doesn't have a dad, with the person who can't pay their bills, with the person who's locked up because of some crime they committed. What is justice? It's a lifestyle of advantaging the poor and the marginalized. Why is it hard? It's hard because it is costly. And so how, finally, is it possible? Friends, it's possible precisely because God is the God of the poor. He is the God of the poor. And if you have come to a place in your spiritual life where you are resting upon Jesus and what he did on the cross for you, then you hopefully have some level of basic understanding of what it's like to be truly poor, to not be able to pay your debts. You have some sense of the shame that you feel when you've done something and indebted yourself such that you cannot pay it off, you cannot make it right, you cannot fix it, all you can do is look to God for mercy. So if you're here this morning, and if you feel like a massive ball of sin and depravity, 
if you're here and you're wondering whether anything you've ever done has been with a pure and undivided motive of love for God, if you're here and you know that you are way too concerned with what other people think about you, you're way too concerned with your appearance, you're way too concerned with your comfort, you're way too power hungry, you're way too focused on your career, you don't really worship God the way you should, you don't really love to be in his house the way you should, you don't really seek his word, you don't really pray like you should, you're, you, you feel like your whole spiritual life is a fraud. If you're here and you're realizing that your anxieties are partly because you really just don't trust God in practice, and if you're feeling urges within you that are damaged and distorted, if you horror at the thoughts that go through your mind and you feel ashamed of all your anger and all your lust and all the porn and all the money that you've wasted and you think that you are a terrible parent and you're mad at other people or jealous of other people and you have this sense that your life is spiritually bankrupt, friends, then I have good news for you this morning because Jesus says you are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually poor, the soul that knows it is bankrupt. Blessed are you who cannot pay your spiritual debts because the Lord God is the Lord of the poor. He is the God of the poor. And if you are bankrupt, He is your God. And He is proud to be your God. And He is drawn toward your brokenness and your shame and your humiliation. He has drawn it like a magnet to iron. So great is his love for you because he favors the poor. He's the God of the poor. And he knows that he loves you with an undying love. Even when Jesus speaks about separating the sheep from the goats, Jesus says that it's the people who come to him and say, Lord, we never did anything for you. They're the ones who were saved. While the ones who come in and brag about all this stuff they've done for God are lost forever. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you cannot be middle class in spirit and be saved. Because God is a God of the poor. And if you're broken, if you're spiritually poor, if you're bankrupt and impoverished in your soul, if he is identifying with you and he is drawn to you and he is your God. I remember being interviewed for a podcast uh, a month or two ago and uh, it was an awful experience and yet as I started toward the end to really get into the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and, and the transformation that the gospel has and it, it causes you to stop identifying good people and bad people because we're all just broken damaged sinners loved by Jesus and one of the pastors interviewing me became livid he became enraged and started insisting that the Bible says there are good people and there are bad people. And the Bible talks about righteousness through faith, but it's real righteousness. And I just sat there dumbfounded that this pastor actually thought he was one of the good people. And I thought how different that was from St. Paul, who saw direct visions of God, who met the resurrected Jesus Christ, who wrote very words of God, wrote half the books of the New Testament, Paul, who had visions beyond the third heaven of the very throne room of God, and yet who could only say, I am the chief and worst of all sinners. Friends, it is the poor in spirit who are blessed. Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is Jesus who is a friend of tax collectors and sinners called a glutton and a drunkard who hangs out with prostitutes and disciples who can't seem to get anything right. The Jesus who looks at the thief on the cross next to him and he says, Thief, 
this day you're going to be with me in paradise. This is the God who is the God of the poor. And if you know your spiritual poverty, if you know you have debts that you cannot pay, then his heart is drawn to your brokenness and your poverty, and his smile is upon you now because he is the God of the poor. And because of that, he purchased a redemption for those poor souls who were his. It's a redemption talked about in verse 18. It's why, as God's people, when you have experienced his grace, it enables you to then do the costly hard work of actually showing grace and favor and advantage to other people who can't pay you back. He says, remember that you were slaves, verse 18, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why you should live lives of mishpat and sadakeh. This is why you should live lives of justice and righteousness. This is the corporate narrative of ancient Israel, the overarching story of the people of God that, that from the very choosing of Abraham, who was worshiping other gods, to, to the, the deliverance from bondage in Egypt, all the way to the coming of Jesus, culminating in his ministry to buy us out of bondage and slavery to belong to him. And there's always a price for that when you redeem something. The word in Hebrew that's used here in this passage for redeemed when he says in verse 18, you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord, Yahweh your God, redeemed you, the word here is the word pada. Uh, it's one of three terms that are commonly translated to redeem. And the key with pada is it's used for, for purchasing something out of bondage. And there is always a price that the redeemer must pay in order to purchase from bondage and set free. The verb is a, a legal term concerning substitution. For example, if you had, you know, every firstborn in Israel had to be redeemed. If, if the firstborn uh, of a clean animal, uh, the way that would happen is the animal would be put to death, it'd be sacrificed. An unclean animal, you'd have to pay a price in order to redeem that animal from the death it should have had. If you had a firstborn son, your firstborn son would have to be redeemed, and so you would then have to pay a price and offer a sacrifice. But there was always a price to be paid, and there was almost always blood to be shed in order to redeem something from bondage. And the Lord redeemed his people from out of slavery, purchasing us as his very own people, and that had a cost. How was the cost paid? How did the Redeemer, the one redeeming from bondage, pay that price? We see that with Jesus, where he came of time to purchase the redemption of every saint from Adam to the end of the age. Uh, in, his, in, his, uh, in his book, Unapologetics, Francis Spieford, who's a Royal Society of Literature fellow, uh, talks about how Jesus in his suffering and death stands in solidarity with those who suffer, especially with the poor and the forgotten and the powerless. He writes this, he says, it is important to note that according to the world standards, Jesus' death was an obscure one. In the eyes of the world, Jesus dies like a migrant worker who suffocates in a freight container. He dies like a garbage picker caught in a slide, like a child with an infected finger, like a beggar that the bus reverses over. Or, of course, like all other slaves ever punished by crucifixion, a fate so low, said Cicero, that no well-bred person should ever even mention it. Some people, he writes, ask nowadays what kind of religion it is that chooses an instrument of torture, that is the cross, as its symbol. And the answer is one that takes the existence of suffering seriously. 
cross, Jesus completely identifies with the agony of the migrant worker, the garbage picker, the unknown child, the beggar, the slave. At the cross, Jesus enters into the shame and the pain and the humiliation and the hopelessness of the poor and marginalized. He did so willingly. He did it on purpose. He did it to pay off the debt that you and I could never, ever repay. He did it because he loves you. And he even in your, and especially in your spiritual poverty. He cared more about helping you than he did about his own life. He's the God of the poor who dies with the poor man's death in order to create a community, an alternate culture within his church, a community that loves and honors the poor and lifts them out of shame and helplessness and gives them a hope and a future in the family of God. I love to tell the story of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a Scotsman in the 2nd Battalion, the Sutherland Highlanders, during the Second World War. He fought in the Malaysian campaign and then in the battle for Singapore. He was one of the last to get out of Singapore, but he was nevertheless captured by the Japanese and forced into a POW camp and tasked with constructing the Siam to Burma Railroad and the bridge over the river why? Over 80,000 prisoners died building that railroad. They died from disease, they died from malnutrition, they died from cruelty of their captors. But the worst cruelty was actually that was inflicted, that which was inflicted among fellow prisoners. Because it was a brutal culture in the POW camp. If you could steal another inmate's food, you stole his food because you were going to go hungry otherwise. If you could steal his clothes, you stole his clothes because that would protect you. If you could steal his boots, you would steal his boots. That way he would be walking over you know, glass and rock and through the jungle barefoot and not you. Your feet wouldn't get sliced up. If you could steal a blanket, you stole a blanket. They were, they were in it for themselves. If you had to kill another man to save your life, you did it. It was dog-eat-dog, dog, every man for himself until one day something happened that radically changed the culture within the POW camp. It was the day that they brought in a labor detail and they counted the shovels and they found that one shovel was missing. And so the Japanese guards lined up all of the men in the camp and demanded that the culprit confess. And when no one did, one of the Japanese guards raised his gun to shoot the very first prisoner. And as he did that, a young man raised his hand and stepped out of line and said, I did it. I confess. I was the one who stole the shovel. And the guard took the butt of his gun and cracked open his skull and they beat him to death right there on the spot. Later that day, they recounted the shovels and they realized that there was not a shovel missing. And every one of those prisoners knew at that point what had happened earlier that day. One innocent soldier, one young man, stepped out of line to take it for everyone else. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He who was alone righteous, he who was alone just, he who alone lived a life of advantaging the weak and the desolate and the poor in spirit. He stepped out of line. And what he took, the beating that he took, was far more savage than what any human being could give. 
and the, the penalty that he paid, the debt that he paid for the rest of us was far more eternal and far more massive. And he paid that price to purchase you out of slavery, to redeem your soul into a relationship with him. He stepped out of line and because of that, you will never face the beating he faced. And he did it to create a culture within his family, within Israel, within his church, shaped by his love, compelled by that story of having been slaves and being set free by a redeemer and his deliberate, self-sacrificial gift for the sake of us who were marginalized and poor and disadvantaged. And he did it for all of you. Let's pray. Our Father, I give you thanks for the mercy, love, and compassion of Jesus. And I praise you, Lord. And I ask that you would shape of us, make of us a community of justice that none would be overlooked within this household. Lord, we can only do that with your grace. And so we consecrate to you this cup, the elements on this table. We consecrate to you this cup that you would bring good news to us who are poor. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.